I would just encourage if if someone is wondering, well, where do I start in understanding God theologically? And how can I integrate that into my life? I would start with the character of God. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast, where we help Christians identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and then proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. Take a moment, hit subscribe, and click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video because we have some great conversations coming up that you are not going to want to miss. But today, I'm very excited to talk with my guest because as Christians, I think that how we think about God— should inform what we think about everything, everything from politics to alcohol to sin struggles to dating, marriage, sex, everything. It's it's not just something we add to our lives, right? What we think about God and what we believe about the nature of reality is going to inform the way we behave, believe, vote, everything. So I do think, though, that some of us as Christians struggle to integrate those things together in making the connections to make this a cohesive whole. So my guest, Felicia Masonheimer, is the founder and CEO of Every Woman a Theologian. So Felicia, so glad to have you on. I've been kind of a longtime fan, wanted to have you on for a while, and I'm so glad you're here. Well, same. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. For anyone who's not familiar with you or your ministry, tell us a little bit about yourself, about Every Woman a Theologian, and just what you do, your family, all the things. Well, I am wife to Josh, and I'm a mom of three littles. I have two girls and a boy, six, four, and 18 months. And when I'm not homeschooling or helping Josh run our farm, I am the CEO of Every Woman a Theologian. And what we do is we equip Christians to know what they believe, why they believe it, and how to communicate it graciously in the world, which is why you and I actually share a lot of followers because Mm -hmm. I think we have very similar missions. And so it's been just amazing to see what the Lord has done um, through our ministry and just how we've been able to teach Christians how to engage with their culture in a way that is truthful but still loving. I love the way that you present yourself on social media. You you are just brilliant at social media. In fact, I, I pulled out your Instagram once and I was showing my husband like, look at all these creative ideas she has about communicating all these like deep biblical truths about the attributes of God or the Trinity. And yet you just feel so peaceful when you're looking at it because like I'll be scrolling through and I'll see one of your posts and it's just like, okay, take a breath, take a breath. <laughs> it's, I love it. You're really, really good at that. And um, I, you know, when I go speak places, a lot of times, you know, I'm kind of like the person that's saying, hey, the house is on fire. Everybody look over here. Like, we got to address this. We can't believe these false ideas about God. Mm-hmm. And then in a Q&A, somebody will say something like, well, how, you know, because I'm giving a lot of the what, and they'll say, well, how do I live that out in my life? Or how do I navigate that in my church or in my family? Uh, how do I talk to my friend who might be persuaded by some of these false ideas about God? And sometimes I'll say, you know, you need to follow Felicia Masonheimer <laughs> because <laughs> she's really good at the whole, like, putting it all together. And so I love that. And I want to get into that today because, as I mentioned in the intro, I do think that a lot of Christians sort of have this idea that we are all kind of just split into all these different parts, and we put things in different compartments. We've got our politics in one compartment. We've got the what we watch, what we entertain ourselves with in another compartment. We have our parenting in another compartment. And yeah, I mean, they can all be different boxes in the waffle, but it's it's all the same thing. It's fully integrated. The Bible has something to say about all of that. It has something to say about every facet of life, from living on a farm to living in a city. It, it's going to speak to it. And so I'm, I'm excited to get into that, but I'm also first just selfishly want to hear about your farm. Tell me about your farm, because <laughs> I'm kind of like <laughs> vicariously living through some of these Instagrammers that have farms right now. <laughs> well, we are kind of a unique situation because we're actually only 10 minutes outside of our city, and yet we're able to have a very small farm with 
pigs, goats, chickens, rabbits, and we use a lot of these animals, you know, to feed our family. Um, and then we are still able to be very connected to our community and to our city. We also don't live in the Bible Belt. So we live in a very agnostic area or nominal Catholic area. And I think that actually affects my ministry in some ways because I am engaging with people every day in my community that are very either averse to Christianity or Christianity is very strange to them. Mm. So um, we are on a farm, but we're not like removed from culture, which is kind of a fun thing for us. That is fun. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I mean, I don't know how uncommon that is, but typically, if you're going to have farmland, it's going to be out away. So that's kind of interesting that you're still surrounded by civilization there. But that's uh, that's just fascinating. But I'd I'd love to hear your story because on your website you mention that you grew up in a Christian home, but you didn't really know why you believed what you did or how it applied to your life. And then that didn't happen until later for you. So what what did that journey look like for you? Take us on that journey with you. So my parents did an excellent job of discipling us. And I think they actually did teach us the why. But like many teenagers, I probably wasn't listening. Mm. And um, as time went on, I just discovered that I had to wrestle with these truths for myself. I had to ask myself, why does the Bible have authority to tell me how I live? That was really my big question. And one of the reasons that I was asking that question is because I had a secret struggle with pornography in the form of books, which are erotic novels. And I was afraid to confess that to anyone. I was filled with shame. I had this besetting sin in my life. And so everything that was being said about Christianity was seen through the lens of this habitual sin, this addiction. And so, you know, when people talked about God's love or the gospel or living the Christian life, I'm sitting there absorbing that information and trying to understand it through the lens of the addiction that I was secretly struggling with. So my question was, if this is true, why am I not free from this struggle? Why did God let me be exposed to this? Um, how do I actually repent? And what does repentance mean? And why does the Bible get to tell me how to live in the first place? I think you get to a point when you're struggling with an addiction that you just, you get either depressed or fatalistic and you're like, nothing's going to change. So why even try? So I had to wrestle with these questions I also had a, a close friend in high school who became an atheist. So I started reading a lot of atheists. And through that that kind of amalgamation of, of things that was happening, I very young had to know why I believed what I believed and what impact it would have on my daily life. Mm -hmm. I had to know that. I went on to get a degree in religion and through that discovered what the realm of theology was and how applicable that actually is to my daily life. So through growing in my faith, through getting my degree, I realized, okay, there is an answer for the questions of the atheist. There is an answer to what repentance is. And there's a practical daily application of theology that actually frees me from addictions, from sexual sin, from shame, from all these things. The gospel actually applies to daily life. And so that journey made me very passionate, both about being free from pornography, which is how I started out writing, but then it led me to teach people, this is why we can trust the Bible, and here's how it plays out. Mm. I know that there are so many people listening right now that what you've just identified, they're saying, that's me. I, I'm struggling with some kind of habitual sin, some kind of um, sin struggle, and I feel defeated. I have these cycles of shame. And so I'm very excited for us to kind of parse through some of that. But I want to back up before we get to that, because I think that we have to lay a foundation first. You mentioned kind of 
early on in that story, you had to know why the Bible basically was the boss of you. Why? What? How did you think through that question? And if you were talking with somebody who would be asking that same question, I mean, why? What, this we live in this culture that is very anti-authority. I think people are very suspicious of authority due to a lot of the abuse allegations that we've seen come out, and people are just really, really suspicious. And so, how can we talk about biblical authority in a way that would help people understand, like, why this is actually good and healthy? For you? Mm. That's a great question and very applicable today. Basically, what I had to do was I had to work backwards from the Bible says this is a sin to who wrote the Bible to how do I know God inspired the Bible and how was it compiled and why can I trust it? So nowadays, I think we would basically call what I went through a form of a deconstruction. Mm. But the difference was that I truly, at my heart, wanted to know whether Jesus was who he said he was and whether Christianity could do what it said it could do. N.T. Wright says that a lot of times deconstruction is actually unfaith seeking historical validation. And maybe it's the wannabe historian in me, but I want to always be open to be persuaded by the facts. So if the historical facts are there, I want to be willing to believe them if they, whether they challenge me or whether they confirm what I already thought. And so when I worked backwards with the history of the canon and the history of the Bible and, and how it was compiled, it proved to me that the Bible was trustworthy. It is trustworthy. And it has the authority to tell me how to live my life. When you look at things like the fact that the testimonies about Jesus, those documents, we have more of those attesting to Jesus than we do to Caesar Augustus or Alexander the Great. And we never doubt that Augustus or Alexander existed or mm -hmm. that they were who they were. And yet we have more documents attesting to Jesus than we do for them. And so it was, that's just one example of the things that I looked at. And so if those documents about Jesus are true and Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament, where did the Old Testament come from? So that's kind of the path mm. that I went on. And it sounds complicated and long, and it was. <laughs> and now I get to share that with other people yeah. who might be asking those questions. Well, and I think that's such a great point, too, because often we live in a meme culture where everybody wants everything answered very, very quickly, and usually with some snark and a, and a picture. <laughs> and, and it's just not going to go that way. If you really want to know how we got the Bible, it's going to take a minute. It's just not something that, that's going to happen like real quick. You're not just going to mm -hmm. find one quick meme to answer all those questions. Mm -hmm. And that it was very similar for me. It was years of looking into that stuff before I really could settle on what I, what I actually thought reflected reality on those things. What was the most surprising thing you discovered about biblical reliability, let's say? Hmm. Well, the note about the eyewitnesses in the Gospels was one of the most persuasive things for me that these documents are early and they're written by eyewitnesses and not just a few a lot and those are the two things that historians are looking for when they look for reliability in a document so that's pertaining to the gospels particularly but also in the pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, the, the documentation of nature and the knowledge of Egyptian landscape mm. sets apart the books of Genesis and Exodus. So the author had to be acquainted with Egypt to document what he did about that area, which I found very interesting seeing as Moses and those authors were coming out of Egypt. Mm, very cool. So walk us through how you made the connection from, okay, you've, you've discovered some of this great evidence. There's lots of evidence toward the reliability of the text and the reliability of what was written. How did you make the connection from that 
to it actually having authority over you. Because you could kind of, I mean, theoretically, you could do that with a history book. You could check into some facts that a history book makes, but you're not necessarily going to make that your authority for mm-hmm. how you live your life as a, as a Christian. So how did you make that right. connection? Well, the fact is that the Bible claims to have that authority. And so if the historical facts and documents are true, then I have to also give the Bible what it demands of me. I have to to say this book says there is a way to follow God and a way to know God. And Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of that. The documents that attest to Jesus are trustworthy. And if and again, for me to come from a historical perspective and say, I trust the documents about these other people, I need to trust the documents about Jesus. So if Jesus then says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that this is the way that you must follow me, that has now laid a burden of choice upon me. I have to make a decision. I'm forced into what a Wesleyan would probably call a crisis of faith. Am I going to decide to follow, or am I going to decide to reject this? So it's almost like it puts you at a point where you have to deny the intellectual and historical reasons for believing in Christ Mm. in order to deny the spiritual reasons for believing in Christ. Mm. It's one whole package. Yeah. So it, it really forces your hand as a reasoned human being. And that, as someone who probably leans more towards the intellectual side of things, that was what assured me that Jesus is who he said he was. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Yeah. So with the Bible as our authority, I'm just trying to help you know people walk through this for themselves. If the Bible is our authority, it has a lot to, to say about sin, and there's different kinds of sin that the Bible talks about. Maybe I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that. Like, what are the different kinds of sin, uh, like besetting sin and dwelling sin, these types of things uh, that Christians may not be aware of? Because I, I often hear people say, oh, all sins are the same. And that's that's not exact—it's kind of true in one sense, that mm-hmm. all sins are going to make us fall short of the, of the glory of God. All sins— basically condemn us to hell, from the tiniest white lie to the to murder. But they have different consequences. There's different ways they work themselves out in our lives. So I wonder if you could comment on that a little bit, just yeah. about sins and sin struggles in general that, that maybe you've encountered with um, the, the people that you've ministered to. So there's a couple of things that we have to understand about sin in general. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Say it again. Say it again. (laughs) We sin because we are born with a predisposition bent towards imperfection. And so there's different theological ideas about how that works, depending on what side of the fence you're on. But um, in the Wesleyan tradition, it means that because you are born with that predisposition, eventually you will make the willful choice to sin against God. And when you do that, you are separated from him. Um, That then causes this rift that has to be remedied. But what has happened in the Christian church is we do one of two things. We either are constantly sin hunting where Mm. it's like, well, if you wear a skirt that's two inches too short, that's a sin. If you buy something on Sunday, that's a sin. And you've created this endless list of sins where people are more concerned with not sinning than they are with knowing God. Mm. That's one extreme. On your other, you have people who say, oh, all sins are the same. So God is gracious. It doesn't really matter. You know, he loves us. Jesus died. So we're all good. And in the middle in that biblical moderation is an understanding that sin not only grieves God, but it hurts us. Mm -hmm. And even so, Christ died to take that sin, to conquer it, and to make it possible for us to walk in fellowship with God. And so when I was struggling 
with this form of pornography, what I held on to was 1 John 1, 9 that says, he who confesses their sins will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. God will forgive their sins and will cleanse them from all unrighteousness. That was my hope because I have a God who's willing to humble himself to to remove that sin from me all so I could fellowship with him. And that experience of grace and that understanding of what sin costs is what motivates us to holiness, not fear of, you know, a list of sins. Yeah. So speaking of a list of sins, I, I'd be curious to get your take on this. And I think this is relevant to this question that we're talking about as far as like, obviously Christians struggle with sin. And I'm sure if we pulled everybody listening to this, virtually everybody would say there's something habitual. There's something that we keep returning to. Uh, maybe that gets better over time. Maybe there's a season of time where it's virtually not there, but then you know maybe we fall or, or we are tempted by it. So then, then you have in the Bible these lists where uh, it says things like these people, and then it lists and it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I think a lot of Christians read that and they go, oh, you know, I've, I've blown it. I've lost my chance. Mm -hmm. I've, I'm out. Or they just feel like very swallowed up in shame or they want to give up. How do you work that out? That's a great question because Paul and other apostles, and even if you look at the Ten Commandments, you have these lists that say, if you are an adulterer, fornicator, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And since adultery in the Old Testament was defined as any sexual conduct outside of covenant sex between a married man and woman, that would cover extramarital sex, premarital sex, pornography, all of it, you know? So how do you then reckon with that if you're someone who has done that? That's the question that I had to ask. And when we're looking at these, the question I think we have to consider is, is the sin that I'm practicing something that I've allowed to identify me? Mm. Or am I actively bringing this to the Lord every single time? Am I actively exposing this to community and accountability? Because there is a difference between struggling with a sin and inviting God's spirit to convict you and work with you to overcome it. God understands that this can be a process. At the same time, if we harden our hearts and we begin pursuing that sin, elevating it, identifying by it, what we've now done is we've said, I'm God of this area of my life, and I, I'm going to continue to pursue this behavior and identify it as morally okay for me. And so it's really a, a spirit of repentance and a spirit of walking with Christ that I think makes the difference between someone who two people can be struggling with the same thing and yet one is walking more and more towards freedom and one is walking more and more towards bondage. Mm. So good. So what would be your advice to someone who would say, I am struggling with this sin. I fall over and over and over again. I'm just about to give up. I don't know what to do. What's your practical advice for, for people who are, are just feel like they're really still, they're, they're Christians, but they still feel like they're enslaved to these sins. What would be your advice? So at the height of my own struggle, I read this book called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. It looks like it was written in 1890. It was not. He's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this book just impacted me so much because in his section on repentance, he said, it is not presumptuous to run to God the minute after you grieve him with your sin. 
And that was so foreign to me. I thought I have to do some kind of penance. I have to go five days, you know, without yeah. falling into this sin, and then I can pray to God and he'll listen to me. And Milton's whole point was the act of running to God when you are still just grieved and scared and shamed by what you've done is the very thing that will break sin's hold on you. Mm. Because you're accepting God's grace. You're believing that he's gracious enough to take you back. And so many of us believe Jesus was gracious enough to die on a cross, but we do not believe he's gracious enough to apply that cross to our sin right now. And until we, we, as John says, know and believe the love God has for us, we won't actually feel free of these things mm -hmm. because we think we still have to do Jesus plus my penance in order to be free. It's just casting yourself on the grace of God mm. and actually trusting that the cross did what it was supposed to do. That's I mean, that the way seems to so, It freedom. seems so simple, but I have found this to be true even in my own life. I've talked publicly about my own struggle with an eating disorder that really kind of blossomed around the time I was in the uh, Christian music industry. And I remember just like you feeling like I can't confess this to anyone unless I've just like not, you know, done the behavior in five days. If, mm -hmm. if I can do that, or I even wanted to get counseling, but I thought I had to at least have a couple weeks under my belt to go to the yep. counselor so that I could report that, mm -hmm. no, it's okay. Like I've, I've got, you know, I haven't done the behavior in two weeks. And it was really my husband when he was just like, you got to just keep it in the light. You got to get it in the light and keep it in the light. And so I started to, we just made a deal that I would confess it every time and get keep it in the light and keep going back. And it went like that, went against every instinct I had. Yes. But see, this is why theology matters, because I can make sense of that because I know that inherently I'm a sinner. So my my bent towards sin wants to keep that hidden so that because the sin, you know, the sin nature wants to protect the sin. And so it's like we we have to fight against that, keep it in the light and understand that we all have this sin nature. Now, I'd love to, to have you talk a bit about what happens when we do become Christians, when we are in Christ, mm -hmm. because the Bible talks about you were a slave to sin, now you you know you've been bought with a price. So it's there's a sense in which we're not just free, like we're free from the bondage of sin, mm -hmm. but we're not just free to go live however we want. We've been right. purchased by another master. So we are right. bond servants of Christ. But how does that work out with, you know, the that the way the Bible talks about that, do we still call ourselves sinners? I mean, because I've given that a lot of thought. I'd be curious to know your mm -hmm. thoughts because you hear Paul saying, I am the worst of sinners, like present tense, right? But then mm -hmm. you have, you don't hear the Bible talking about Christians as sinners a lot. So how do you work that out? I love that question because I think this is actually one of the turnkey points that helps Christians walk out their faith. Mm. And my opinions are a bit controversial on this, so okay. I don't expect everyone to agree. Paul does say, I am the worst of sinners, but that's a very rare instance. It's actually like one of only a few times in the entire Bible that that particular phrases used. Most of the time, he greets fellow Christians as saints. You are the saints in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you. And based on what he says in Romans, based on what he says all throughout his other epistles, based on what John says about us in 1 John, based on what Jesus says, I have called you friends. You are my children. You know, these words do not mean that we never sin, but that there is a fundamental change of identity that has happened. And so when I teach this, I actually do tell Christians that I don't encourage you to identify as a sinner. I don't encourage you to identify as porn addict. I mm. encourage you to identify 
as who Christ made you, which is saint in Christ, child of God, adopted as sons and daughters. You are a saint who sometimes sins. And when you do, you may confess and be completely restored. Mm. So everything we do in the Christian life is not to earn our sainthood. It's an expression of our sainthood. It's the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit working the fruit of the Spirit in us, giving us a greater and greater desire for holiness and forming us into the image of Christ. And so that won't be complete here on earth, but we are saints in Christ. When Revelation talks about the saints around the throne, that's who it will be. And so I believe that in your mind, it's important to understand that shift of identity. So you're living up to who you already are. You're not trying to overcome who you used to be. Mm. So you mentioned that's controversial. What's the pushback you get on that mainly? I think there, there's a tension because as a reaction to our culture, some members of the church think it's very important to counter the messages of you're worthy just by who you are, mm. you know, or you don't have to change anything. So they want to emphasize the sinner identity mm. so that people don't try to earn their salvation. And I would say reactive theology is never sound theology. Yeah. Scripture says that we are saints. And right. so for me to stay true to scripture, I believe I have to teach a message that says that Christ made us saints. And that fundamentally changes how we live out our salvation. I was wondering if the pushback was maybe a misunderstanding of what you're saying, because I know there is one sort of branch of what I would call to be a little bit kind of out there. I don't know if I would say it's a false gospel. It's a little out there. Well, maybe this teaching would be. But where they, they would say something similar, but then take it further, and they would say, which means you are sinless. You don't sin anymore. You just make mistakes or something. Right. And so I was wondering if maybe the pushback was more a misunderstanding of what you're saying. But, you know, even the people that would say, well, you know, they're pushing back on what you're saying because they they don't want you to feel like you can earn your salvation. You're talking about post-conversion anyway. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I can't hear anything in there that I'm like, mm, no, I, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I read in the Bible too. So <laughs> very good. Okay. Um, now you mentioned, this is, this is, might be a good place for us to go here because, um, and all of this again ties together, right? We're talking about sin struggles. We all have these sin struggles, but there are other aspects of our lives where our theology is going to touch all of it. And, it might be good to lay a foundation of the essentials. I know this is something you really love to talk about because as you mentioned before, you said you talked about some version of the depravity of man and you said in this tradition, we, it sounds like this. In this tradition, it sounds like this. And yet we all know that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So there has to be this core essential. I'm sure there are things you and I don't totally even agree on, but we have that same core. So how do you go about thinking about that question of what are the essentials and... Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. I love what G.K. Chesterton said about this. He said that Christian orthodoxy, which just means sound teaching, is the creeds and the historic conduct of those who held such a creed. Mm. And I would take that to mean the core tenets of the gospel, which the Apostles' Creed the Nicene Creed, they kind of sum that up for us that, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ and the Father, proceeding from the Father, Holy Spirit, death, burial, resurrection, things like that. But then in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council of Apostles gathers to decide what do we teach new converts? What's the first thing that we teach them after the gospel in terms of their behavior and how to act? And they're debating it. And then James stands up and he says, essentially, three things need to be concentrated on. Sanctity of life, which in their context was don't drink blood, don't eat anything with the blood in it. That was, in their context, that was like the top tier, most commonly 
um, commonly transgressed issue when it came to sanctity of life. The next was sanctity of worship. Don't be eating things, sacrificed to idols or hanging out with idols, basically. And then the third one was sanctity of sex, abstain from sexual immorality. So those three things that they're teaching after the gospel is sanctity of worship, sanctity of sex, and sanctity of life. Those are what I would say the historic conduct of those who held such a creed. And you could look also at the command to love one another, like we see Jesus teaching, like we see in 1 John, this is to characterize us. Our love for one another is to characterize us. So first tier core doctrines are the non-negotiables. They're like the trunk of the tree of Christianity. And then second and third tier doctrines are like the branches where there's going to be some differences in expression, how you do baptism, what kind of worship music you use, things like that. And so there's freedom for those differences of expression. But if you try to splice something out of the trunk of the tree, you might as well just cut the whole tree down. Mm. You can't create, like you say, another gospel. The tree has to stay the same in order to call yourself a Christian or a Christian denomination. Okay, so we're talking about integrating our our theology into every aspect of life, and I've uh, we just maybe about two months ago we did a little two part series on politics, and I always avoided politics. In fact, when I wrote another gospel, I wrote it from a purely theological perspective because politics was just so inflammatory and divisive, and I just didn't want to I didn't want to jump in that. But then I realized, and I talked about this in one of those episodes, that I found myself actually saying, okay, well, if I'm not going to be political, I can't say that. But if I don't say that, then I'm withholding something biblical mm -hmm. that I should be saying. So that can't mm -hmm. be right. And so actually part of my po series on politics was even to help me in my own thinking integrate mm -hmm. that. But I'm curious to know, like, how do you think through the question of how Christians should think about politics, engage with yeah. politics? Um, from, you know, as Christians, and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. Right. Your theology is going to impact your politics. In some traditions, theology impacts politics by causing them to actually abstain. So in many Anabaptist traditions, you will see people who don't vote, won't go to war, things like that. But in other traditions of Christianity, you will see people who hold to sanctity of life, uh, sanctity of sex, sanctity of worship, the creeds, but they believe that the way to work out the Christian ethic should function a different way. So one group might say, I'm going to uphold the Christian ethic of love and life, and I'm going to do it through government. Mm. Another might say, I'm going to uphold the Christian ethic of love and life, but I don't want the government involved. That's my job to do that personally through my church, through parachurch ministries, personally to my neighbors. And what happens is these two groups get very angry at each other because of the mode by which they're attempting to live out their Christian ethic politically. Mm. So uh, how would you apply your theology to your marriage? So this is a great example of, I think, where the love ethic of Christianity plays out. I think we get really tied up in the theology of gender roles in marriage, and we fail to think about what's the overarching Christian ethic towards all believers. So for me in my marriage with, to my Christian husband, he's my husband, but he's also my brother in Christ. So what does 1 Corinthians 13 say about loving anyone? It says I should be patient and kind, not arrogant or rude. And that's not a gender specific command. Mm. So that means my husband is to be humble and kind and patient and respectful to me, just as I am to him. In Ephesians 5, Paul is going through teaching not just to husbands and wives, but to everyone in the church that we're to defer to one another, that we're to honor one another. And, and it's not supposed to be a power struggle, right? We're to emulate Christ in how he laid himself down 
So the theology of who Christ is, his theology of God loved us, so we love others, that should be forming my theology of marriage. Mm. Very good. If there was a, a young teenager who came up to you, maybe you're speaking at an event and they come up to you and they say, I just don't understand why gender is such a big deal in the Bible. Like, why does it say male and female, God created them? Why Why is why are these two things separated out and with seemingly different um, applications in life and roles? And, you know, why is only one get to be a mother and only one is the father? How would you work that out theologically with maybe a young teen who, who growing up in this culture, it's very hard for them to understand those things, why there are distinctions? Mm-hmm. I think... One of the simplest ways, as someone who has struggled with the sexuality conversation, one of the simplest ways that I have understood it is that the two genders are a unified reflection of the character of God. Everything in the woman and everything in the man were first found in God. You know, the biblical authors used the the male pronoun for God when they were recording the biblical narrative, but God also is expressed in very nurturing and motherly ways throughout the Bible too. And so everything that woman is, everything man is, is first found in God and is expressed perfectly in these two people that he designed, whose bodies are literally designed to work together to both experience covenant pleasure together and to create a new image bearer of God. Mm -hmm. And procreation is one of the fundamental designs of sex. That's actually, I think, another really important point that our culture just and church wants to avoid. Mm. It's one of the fundamental designs of sex. You take that away, it changes the whole sexual conversation. So God created this male and female as this unified picture of who he is, even in a fallen world. So that means that even outside of marriage, our single men and women picture God when they love their community effectively, when they love one another as Christ loved the church, when married people love singles. All of us together are forming this picture of Christ's love so that we can be a city on a hill. And gender is just one piece of that picture. Mm. I love that. So then, of course, flowing out from marriage, I know that a huge thing for for Christians. In fact, there's some data, and I wish I could pull it up, but it's just I'm going to give it to you off the top of my head. But I was reading some data about, um, you know, we we have this epidemic of kids leaving the church after high school. And um, so I think a lot of parents are aware of that, and they're concerned and I'm wondering if a lot of, and I talked with uh, Brett and Aaron Kunkel about this on our uh, in our parenting series. I wonder if a lot of Christian parents are sort of pulling the punch a little bit. They're like not wanting to be too, you know, too religious or too much talking about Christianity in the Bible because they don't want to push their kids away. You know, maybe they've listened to some deconstruction stories where the person says, oh, my parents just crammed this down my throat, and that's all they talked Mm -hmm. about, and now I've gotten out into the world and realized that that was really kind of fringe. And and I think parents are afraid, maybe, to really disciple their kids the way the Bible really calls us to. So I wonder if you could comment on that, too. Like, yeah. what what about what we believe about God, our theology, is going to impact the way we parent our children, especially in this cultural moment? I have a lot of thoughts on this because I was raised in a great Christian home, and I was homeschooled, and I watched a lot of those kids walk away. But I'm the oldest of six kids, and all six of us not only walk with the Lord, but have strong relationships with the Lord. Wow. And I think that it says a lot about my parents that they raised six children who all love the Lord. And so when I think back on what they did, what I see is not just that they taught us these truths but they did not teach them in a fearful way Mm -hmm. they taught them in a way that left room for the sovereignty of god and for his work in our lives they trusted that god could save us and that it was a personal relationship 
that we had to develop with him. And because of that foundation, even though I was struggling with pornography, I had something to return to that I don't think I would have had if my parents hadn't given that basis for me. The other thing, and I think this is probably the most important thing, is that my parents lived their faith as much as they talked about it. So we saw them studying their Bibles. We saw them early in the morning. We felt my dad come in the room late at night before bed and put his hands on our heads and pray over us while he thought we were sleeping. We saw our parents fight for their marriage, fight with each other in front of us, and then come back and tell us, I know you saw us fight, but we're going to make this work. We're, we're fighting for our unity. And this isn't to say that children of divorce or children who come from homes that aren't Christian can't be saved or won't do amazing things for the Lord. That happens all the time. But when I'm talking to generations who want to break the patterns of those beforehand, I just shared this is what my parents did that set us up for success. And they did not come from healthy homes. Mm. So that just says a lot about what God can do. That's really powerful advice. And I'm listening to you talk about your story. And I I feel the same way. I know that when I went through my deconstruction crisis of faith, when I was watching all of my friends basically walk away from the gospel, I, I looked at what they were walking away from, and it was different than than what I would be walking away from if I had to walk away. And I, I don't mean in every single case it's all the same, of course, but I remember even one time in the class saying, like, I, I just, I don't relate with wanting to walk away. My, my parents were real Christians. They, like you mentioned, they um, prayed with us and repented to us in front of us. I would walk in on my parents reading their Bibles and, you know, just those little things like the hand. And it was always to prayer first. And, mm -hmm. and I remember a guy in the class just saying, wow, I mean, I don't think any of us know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what I was going to bring up with the data, and I forgot to say, you just basically articulated exactly what the data showed, yeah. which was that, you know, we see this kind of unprecedented number of kids leaving the church after high school. Some come back, so it's I don't think the numbers are quite as high as people have thought uh, in the past. But there was some data that was done on the ones who stayed. And among the ones who stayed, there were two characteristics in their homes that were universally similar. And that is that, number one, their parents actually lived it out. Mm -hmm. And number two, they weren't legalistic. Yep. It was like those yep. two things. And I look at my parents, and it's like, yeah, I think that was present in my home. Not perfect by any. I mean, my dad had a very public, he was a, a Christian musician. He had a very public bout with alcoholism. It was, you know, I mean, this was something that was, you know, that he walked through. But I watched him go to the Lord with that. And I watched the Lord free him from that and him walk that out. And mm -hmm. so there were a lot of those faith-building kinds of things that weren't just polished and sanitary. I mean, it was there was some yeah. rough years, but um, just what, knowing that my parents knew that yeah. this was all real and true and they lived as if it were. Because I look mm -hmm. at some other people I know, like I know kids who have grown up in more nominal homes where the parents may be, you know, we, we have, I've been in the Bible Belt now for over 20 years. And so you see more of that here, where you mm -hmm. see people who just are kind of Sunday Christians. You go to church on Sunday, mm -hmm. maybe you even go during the week and you're involved in a couple of groups, but otherwise... It's just not that much a part of your life, Christianity. It's like, you know, you just kind of go see whatever movie you want. There's no discernment at practice with that. There's there's no no standard for holiness in your life. It's just sort of like whatever, but then you go to church. And I've seen kids who grew up in homes like that, and, and they're not walking with the Lord today. So I think that's a huge point. And then the legalism point, I think, is is really, uh, you know, strong as well. Legalism being, I mean, I don't know how you define it. I define it really as adding moral obligations to people that the Bible doesn't yeah. 
doesn't hold them to. Um, similar to what the Pharisees were doing when they were saying, you know, if you pluck a head of grain on Sunday, it's work. The command was actually don't, you know, you can't work. You have to rest on Sunday. But they started to add to that and say, well, here's all the things that constitute work. And if you pick up your mat, that's working. And, you yeah. know, they were adding all of these impossible standards to people. And I think we that some churches are doing that. And that causes people to kind of not be able to disentangle that from the gospel. And then they end right. up walking away. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to give you a moment to um, let everybody know, like, what would be the one thought you'd want to leave everybody with in this idea? I know that people are watching who are probably struggling. They're trying to figure out how to integrate all of of this um, as a fully integrated Christian. Like, my theology needs to inform every part of my life. Um, What would you leave us with maybe some encouragement today? I would just encourage if if someone is wondering, well, where do I start in understanding God theologically and how can I integrate that into my life? I would start with the character of God. Mm. Who is he? How does he act? How does he relate to humanity? Because it is God's character that we trust. It's not what he's going to do. Not even what he did, it's who he is. And that's the foundation for everything we trust in the gospel. It's the reason we can trust the gospel and that it changes us is because we know that God is not just kind, he's not just good, but he's good to us, to you, no matter what you've done. He's good to you. And he's seen it all. And yet he still was willing to go to the cross knowing exactly what was going to happen and what you were going to do. And that, knowing that God knew it all and yet still was willing to lay himself down, is the power of the gospel. And knowing and accepting that is what empowers us to a fearless faith. Because legalism is just fear Mm. that's trying to become holy. So as long as you live in that fearful place, you're going to have to add on all of these rules to the gospel, and you're never going to experience the faith that the apostles died for, the Jesus that they knew. So the power of walking in the gospel is truly in rejecting fear-based pursuits and instead knowing the heart of God for yourself and experiencing that on a daily basis. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank my guest, Felicia Masonheimer. Go to every uh, woman, a theologian. It's FeliciaMasonheimer.com for blog posts. She's got a great podcast. Follow her on Instagram. And uh, if you're listening to this on audio platforms, it always helps if you leave a good review. Always helps if you share this on your social media platforms. And of course, if you're watching on YouTube, clicking subscribe and clicking that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video will ensure that you will not miss some of the great conversations we have coming up. So thanks so much for watching and we'll talk to you next time. 